If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. There's always been a kind of perceived connection between Oxbridge, Oxford and Cambridge, and wealth and privilege, and essentially being posh. But really, if you look back at the very first students, they, they weren't from wealthy, entitled backgrounds necessarily. That was Ellie Cawthorne talking about the history of student life. In the 1960s, in the sort of what people think of as the golden ages, perhaps, of early British rock, bands were full of people called Bob and Eric and Bill and Bert and these very stolidly working class names. And that was Stuart McConey commenting on the decline of working class participation in popular culture. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, Available from all good news agents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo, and Zinio. Look out for us in your App Store or newsstand, or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Hello and welcome to our second podcast of April 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our first interview this week is with Ellie Cawthorne. Ellie is the presenter of a new 10-part history of student life on BBC Radio 4, which compares the experiences of modern university students with their predecessors from centuries past. Ellie, herself a recent graduate, also now happens to be working on the History Extra website. And so she didn't have to travel too far to make it to our podcast studio, where she spoke to our digital editor, Emma Mason. So Ellie, you're presenting a new BBC Radio 4 series, Scenes from Student Life, which covers 900 years of British student life. What can you tell us about the series? So it's a 10-part series and each episode takes a certain moment, a kind of snapshot from a moment in 900 years of student life, as you say. And then we kind of examine what happened and expand it out to look at some themes that have run through the centuries of student life. And also we draw contemporary parallels for everything that we look at. So, for example, we compare the diary of... Um, a guy called Abraham de la Prime who went to university in 1690 to the blog of a girl who's graduated this year. So it's all kind of used to draw comparisons or look at differences with how things are today. Um, so it's it's quite varied. There's a whole different load of themes. Some are quite sombre, so we look at war and students' experience during that. But then also we have a lot of pranks and parties feature because to be honest students have always been a bit mad so <laughs> it's quite light-hearted in po- at points as well so it's a it's a whole it's very broad spectrum and it really fits into 
basically the last 900 years of British social history. So it's a very wide field we're covering. Fantastic. And uh, you're a history graduate yourself. How did you and the team go about researching the series? Um, so I was brought on board because basically the team wanted somebody who'd recently experienced student life. So I was almost the kind of recent student correspondent. Mm-hmm. So they'd say, do people still think this <laughs> at universities today? Um, but yeah, as you say, I also have a background in history. But the way the um, the series was kind of began some episodes come from really amazing material that there is so for example we have an episode about uh, based in Royal Holloway which is about the first some of the first female students there because there's an incredible archive of uh, photographs of some of their rooms in 1896 and at Manchester University archive there are some incredible letters that students who were at the trenches wrote to their history professor back in Manchester in World War One, mm. So some of them, that's a starting point for some of them. Um, and others are just really kind of interesting and lesser known moments from history. So there was the Brown Dog Riots in 1907 where medical students marched on London and things got very violent. Or uh, Essex prote- protests at the University of Essex in 1968. So some of them kind of narratives that just needed to be told anyway. And then we just went about finding a whole bunch of amazing experts, historians, archivists, um, in some cases people who were there, so people who were involved in the Essex protests, some of the ringleaders, in fact, um, who could kind of illustrate the stories but also contextualise them. So it was amazing for me as a history graduate because I just got to go around the UK interviewing experts in their fields basically um around the UK it was amazing fantastic sounds brilliant and uh and through history what sort of people have gone to university did you find they had to come from a wealthy background or well what I what was really surprising to me and was also very interesting was that there's there's always been a kind of perceived connection between Oxbridge Oxford and Cambridge and wealth and privilege Mm. and essentially being posh but Really, if you look back at the very first students, they they weren't from wealthy, entitled backgrounds necessarily. I mean, they weren't peasant labourers, but they were people who were training to be um, priests and clergymen. So they didn't come from necessarily as privileged backgrounds as you might think. And also, um, in the kind of 17th and 16th century, there was a very interesting establishment of, of the role of sizer, which was essentially where um, students who couldn't afford to study could serve as servants, essentially, to the college or to other students, um, which now sounds kind of degrading. <laughs> um, it was to pay their way, essentially, and they had to even wear special hats that marked them out as sizes. So they were very... They didn't have an easy time of it, but it actually, in many ways opened up a lot of opportunity. Um, So people like Isaac Newton or Thomas Nash, who was a satirist and a big playwright, they studied as sizes and without that kind of ability to do that, they probably wouldn't have been able to afford to study at all. Wow, that's amazing. And obviously I guess it's worth saying that um, women were very late to um, Mm -hmm. join the party, which um, is a challenge in the series when there's, For the whole first section, which is pre-19th century, women really don't feature. So trying to incorporate contemporary parallels that have women or um, things like that was quite important, really. So they didn't join the party, did you say, till about the late 19th century? Yeah, the late 19th century is when you have the first um, women colleges, and they were at the time all female colleges. So you have Newnham and Girton in Cambridge, and then uh, you also have Royal Holloway, and then you have Lady Margaret Hall and Somerville in Oxford, which are the 1870s as well. Um, and yeah, these were all female colleges, which didn't really have a lifestyle you might think of um, as at all similar to a modern modern student lifestyle. In many ways, they were, they were more like girls' boarding schools, really, right. in, in the lifestyle that um, the people had there. But for for the girls who 
were the first there. They really were pioneers, and it was really an, an incredible opportunity for them. And in Royal Holloway, um, the students, first students even, were also allowed to study science subject, subjects. So that was very, very pioneering at the time. And the founder, Thomas Holloway, um, had a very um, forward-thinking view of education for women at the time. Fantastic. And do you know when was it that they started to mix with well, male students? Well, Royal Holloway um, didn't admit any male students until 1965. Wow, so, 1965. But, yeah, and you can only imagine how that went. So <laughs> for over 70 years, it was ex- exclusively um, a female domain. But that was, there were a lot of um, contemporary concerns about maintaining propriety of young Mm -hmm. student female students so though in in all these colleges they were very much kept um separate as possible and halls of residence throughout you largely only went co-ed in the 60s too wow so um it's been a very it's been a very long and slow process i think really there absolutely and you mentioned there the halls of accommodation what was the setup as over the years, in terms of when students moved away from home, where did what were their boardings like? Well, they have for a long period lived um, in college halls, but before that, um, there was also a lot of students in med- in the medieval period. A lot of the students lived in private accommodation, so they lived under landlords or whatever. But um, in, for example, we we take a look at Lord Byron, and in his day, um, he could he essentially could pay for a, a huge, magnificent set of rooms, mm. whereas the people who would be the sizes at the time serving him or whatever would have a much more humble setup. So it, it was all about dependent on your means, essentially. And Lord Byron was quite interesting in this fact because when he arrived as a fresher, he ordered all new wallpaper for his uni room and a whole set of new furniture and also ordered up from his um, his servant a whole, essentially a wine cellar of his own to keep <laughs> in the college. So, I mean, he was quite a remarkable case, really. But um, we do actually trace how people kind of look after their rooms and what it says about them through the years. So the first female students the, the images that we have of their rooms are, are really interesting because they're a way for these first female students to kind of stamp their identity and their independence on their mm. room and actually have some autonomy over it. Um, but, I mean, they're not, <laughs> they're not exactly rebellious by modern standards. <laughs> they have a lot of um, flowers and artist prints and things like that. But there are some, some more interesting choices in people's rooms um, so there was reportedly a nun's skeleton in in one girl. Um, no, I think it's a, a man's room in Victorian uh, Cambridge, yeah, <laughs> which he essentially had as a, you know, a kind of trophy, like the modern yeah. traffic cone that people would steal to, <laughs> for a joke, really. Fascinating. And you mentioned rebellion there. I understand the series also looks at student protest through mm-hmm. history. What can you tell us about that aspect of student life? Um, well, the protest that we especially focus on is Essex in 68, mm-hmm. which the University of Essex was a, a brand new university then. And um, it was uh, it was all triggered off by uh, the bringing controversial speakers to speak at the university. So was very much the students kind of challenging established ways of thinking and um so yeah it was all about students wanting their voices to be heard and putting their own agenda on universities rather than being told what to think or what to do but there have been protests further back throughout time the medical student protest to do with vivisection um at the turn of the 20th century where medical students were essentially defending their rights to vivisect, which is live dissection of animals, mm-hmm. because they felt it was very important to their education that they be allowed to um, use this kind of up-to-date scientific method. And then further back, not a protest so much as but a conflict, 
you have conflicts between them. Um, back in the medieval period, you have conflicts between townspeople and students over privileges that the, the university gets, mm-hmm. um, which are a, lot, are a lot more like a kind of brawl than a modern protest, mm-hmm. you'd see. So there's always been um, that potential to erupt into violence and conflict has always been there throughout the history, which is interesting. That is interesting. So there's always been that friction between students and local residents. And and how did that change over time? How Or how did it, if it didn't result in a protest, were there other ways that that tension manifested? Mm-hmm. Well, after the, the notable um, town and gown conflict that we look at is 1355 in Oxford, which was basically all-out warfare. People were killed and it was armed battles on the streets, essentially. Um, But after that, King Edward III came down really strongly on the side of the university. And since then, you can see that universities have always been given privileges and stuff. So that that really has, I do think, affected how um, they've interacted with the local population through time. And I think those echoes, I mean, we probably wouldn't go into an all-out brawl these days, but I think those echoes can still be seen. Um, I think people who are recent students that we spoke to and from my own experiences, there is definitely a divide between, in a lot of major cities, between student population and the so-called local population, even though everybody's a local from somewhere. Um, And I guess it just takes on different forms now, so whether it's conflict over rents or on nights out, um, I think there still is a perceived kind of social divide as well. Mm. And how would you say, having spoken to so many experts, historians, and like I said, people who were actually there at uh, some early riots, how do you think the student experience broadly has changed over time? Well, I think it has changed massively, really, um, hugely. Um I think there are still um, a lot of obstacles for people studying now, um, most notably financial. Mm -hmm. But I think in many ways it's opened up. There's just been a huge... um, After World War II, there was a really huge expansion in university provision, and which meant that a lot of new types of people, which never had the opportunity to study before really um, kind of were able to. And I think we should be grateful for that, even though it's still not, um, it's it's not a perfect system, but um, it's definitely come a very long way. And um, when you think back of some of the obstacles that people in the past had to face, so gender for foreign students, um, racial prejudice and, and war, even mm. um, we really these days maybe don't have such a difficult time of it. Yeah, comparatively. <laughs> comparatively. And um, and could you draw any parallels between students then and now? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, there's always been, like we say, that tendency towards conflict. Um, I think that still can be seen today in some ways. And I think maybe that's just a thing about youth um, as well as students. But what what was really interesting actually was to see how traditions and certain elements of student life have have not really stayed exactly the same, but how they've evolved and how Mm. they've um, kind of been adapted for different ages. Um, So traditions like St Andrew's Raisin Weekend, Mm -hmm. which was once a much more formal, uh, traditional thing about paying your way and paying to enter the university community, has now been kind of co-opted into an initiation um, of a much more social and also crazy (laughs) (laughs) variety. and the students every year, the the university has doesn't dictate it at all. It entirely comes from the students. The students generate it, and they choose to carry on this tradition and keep it going. But every year they add their own bit of it, and they take away a bit that's not 
that relevant anymore. And it's interesting to trace it through the years and see how it has evolved. Um, but I think there are definitely common threads that students throughout time have, have faced. I mean, a central one being finance and money. And I think that has always concerned, obviously not every student, but always been a concern of some students. Um, just going back to the Raisin Weekend, what, what was? can you remind us what that was about originally when it first started? So it first started um, as the idea that you would pay to join the university community by giving a gift to an academic parent who would be an older student. So you would give them a pound of raisins which which had you know value at, more value yeah. at the time um and for that they would uh well essentially welcome you to the community um and give you a receipt to say this person has essentially paid their way they're good to go which you would have to hold on to so now the gift of raisins has transferred into wine <laughs> or even vodka which definitely doesn't come from raisins um and the whole thing is kind of trans transformed into a big extravaganza um a three-day party where older students who've already who are second years or third years kind of adopt freshers and, and welcome them into the fold but it's it's um based a lot more around drinking games and crazy challenges and treasure hunts that kind of thing nowadays than um I'm sure it would have been back in the past. Um, so, yeah, that was my first day on the job was um, I got up at seven in the morning to interview uh, freshers who were running into the sea <laughs> on the beach, on St Andrew's Beach. So, thankfully, things have got a little more sedate for the rest of the series <laughs> after that. And you mentioned drinking there. I'm sure a lot of modern day students would be curious to know when is it po possible to pinpoint when that became such a prevalent mm. part of student culture. Uh, well, it's always been there, but in the in the early modern period, there was quite a big um, kind of idea because everything about a lot about education was to do with la everybody lessons were in Latin and it was all about um, the classical world. Well, not all about it, but that was a big influence. Um, another influence from the classical world was that of hedonism and Bacchus and debauchery. And that arguably was linked with the idea of intellectualism. Mm. Um, so that kind of re-emerged in the early modern period. And but it's, it's, it is important to say that it's not always... There's always been another side to the coin. For those who wanted to go down that route, that definitely happened. But there was quite a big, also in the um, kind of 17th and 18th century, reformist, more puritanical movement mm. in which a lot of students, um, such as one who wrote um, a diary, Abraham de la Prime, that we studied... Not studied. Diary that we looked at... Mm -hmm. Um, they were actually a lot more straight-laced than you would think students would be, than we think of students as today. So they really were about really dedicating yourself to study and not mm. being distracted by anything <laughs> as silly as drinking. I see, okay. And we touched earlier on finances, um, and I was really interested to realise that students have been travelling abroad to study since the 12th century. I understand you researched um, British students learning abroad in around the 19th to 20th century. What, what can you tell us about that? Well, the, yeah, this I didn't know anything about this. So it was absolutely fascinating to find out about that there was a big um, movement, especially in colonial students um, coming to Britain. And India in particular was uh, very keen on sending um, anybody who wanted to be in the civil service to British universities. Um, and what's really interesting is that you see a huge amount of people coming from over the globe to study in British universities through the 19th and 20th century. People like Gandhi um, and Nehru and then later Bill Clinton. And essentially it's a, you get global politicians mm. um, all coming together in British universities in a big melting pot 
and exchanging ideas. So when, for decolonization, you get a lot of um, leaders of new independent nations in Africa originally studied and um, mixed with Indian students who'd got independence in British universities, um, which is very interesting. Mm. And also the fact that um, some of people, in many ways you could get opportunities in British universities that they couldn't get back home. So some I was really amazed to find out that some of Britain's really earliest female students were in fact Indian, um, okay. which was remarkable that they not only could study as students but they tra- as as female students but they traveled across the world to do that mm. which was very incredible but it was of course quite a mixed experience because while some students had um, the most amazing time studying in Britain um and kind of went away ex- expounding the values of British society and saying it was the best thing they'd ever experienced others there were was a lot of it prejudice um, at the time, especially racial prejudice um, for non-white students. And uh, they really, a lot of students, especially in the 1950s and 60s, struggled to find um, accommodation. And so that's why a lot of international student halls were set up, really, because um, of those issues. But also, um, arguably, the students experience more prejudice outside of university communities generally than within them um, seems to be the accepted trend of things. So it sounds like you learned an awful lot throughout this process. What would you say was the most interesting? Um, Well, like you say, there's a whole host of stuff. One of my personal favourite moments was um, I went to interview a man called Peter Beely, in his home, and he was a student in Sheffield during World War II. Wow. And what was so remarkable about him was that his story in itself wasn't really that remarkable. He just, he he did a shortened degree during war. He studied metallurgy, so it was valuable. It was, it's kind of the science of metal. So mm-hmm. it was valuable to the, um, to the war effort. So he didn't have to go to the, to serve. Right. Um, but he, yeah, he's just studied in Sheffield. But the way he told certain moments, like he he was so he was so blasé about the fact that um, the exam hall was bombed, so they all had to do exams with in a room with no windows wow. in the winter. Wow! And he spoke about doing. Um, uh, they he had to be a member of the senior training call, which was kind of an uh, a, a officer training element for. It was kind of like the home guard, but for university students, which they had to, they were required to um, do. And they did a whole load of um, military operations just in the Yorkshire Yorkshire countryside. (laughs) And he just seemed so um, calm about the whole fact that at any moment, you know, they could have been bombed or that everybody he knew was being sent off to the war he just you know the acceptance that that was the way it was was is was really amazing um and I guess going further back another thing that personally for me was just on a lighter note really interesting for me I did a lot of student theatre when I was at student when I was a student and um we found out that actually student theatre has been going on for centuries and centuries so we, there's a, a satirical student play from 1598, um, which was written about and about um, two students who basically are trying to get an education and then get jobs. But the level of satire in it and the jokes that it makes, they're in different language, but really they could be written today because wow. they're about how graduates, the, the two graduates can't get a job and they have to... Um, <laughs> You know, they have to become uh, shepherds and actors and really throughout their degree they're also tempted away from academia by drink and by lust and by laziness. (laughs) And so it really feels remarkably kind of contemporary. Wow. And it was written when, sorry? Um, Well, it was first performed um, in St John's College, Cambridge in 1598. 
Wow. Amazing how many mm-hmm. parallels there are. Yeah. Fantastic. And, um, and having researched 900 years of student history, which century would you most like to have been a student in? Well, I think there's a caveat to all this, which is that I am a, I'm female. Mm-hmm. And so in that case, to be honest now, because even in 1968, which is where we basically end the series, women didn't really get that great deal of it um, in the protest movements then. But I think if we take away, if we ignore gender, um, I think... 1968 would have been a really would have been an incredible time to be a student because with the there's a whole there's a feeling of hope and a feeling that really through protesting and um, getting out on the streets with your placards that you're really going to change something and it's a it's kind of the first time that youth culture is really exploding and I think that would just be a really exciting time to be a student but if you want to Further back, maybe I'd go for the 17th century because (laughs) it's a bit different to the 60s. Um, But then you you could study basically a a crazy weird range of subjects, so whichever you were interested in. So you could do like chemistry and alchemy, and then you could do like natural history, um, philosophy, debating, and... It was just like a weird hodgepodge, even magic. You can study magic. Wow. Um, so, and at the end of it all, you got to do kind of your exam. Basically, you were just told all the answers before. So, and it was an oral exam. So I think anybody who's done a dissertation in recent years would probably take that yes. if they were offered it. <laughs> that was Ellie Cawthorn speaking to Emma Mason. Scenes from Student Life begins on Monday the 18th of April at 1.45pm on BBC Radio 4. And do look out for an accompanying article by Ellie on historyextra.com. Meanwhile, back in the world of print media, our April edition is currently on sale. In this month's magazine, we're taking an in-depth look at Shakespeare and his histories as we approach the 400th anniversary of the playwright's death. Plus, we have articles on ancient Rome, an Anglo-Saxon warrior king, and the sad fate of Catherine Howard. Look out for our April edition now, in all good news agents, and on many digital formats. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. Sticking with our radio theme, our next interview is with Stuart McConey. Stuart is one of Britain's best-known radio voices, as well as being a successful author and TV presenter. For his next documentary, entitled Working Class Heroes and Poverty Porn, Stuart explores the dramatic changes in how working-class people have appeared in popular culture, 
in the decade since the Second World War. I spoke to him down the line a little while back to find out more. So first of all, the programme begins by considering the lack of working class pop stars in Britain today, which is I mean, something that I've actually noticed myself personally. Do you have any thoughts about why this has happened? Yeah, I, I think of myself, I suppose, as a writer, weirdly, first and foremost, and I write about social history and pop culture and things like that. But on a daily basis, of course, some people might know, I've got a daily music show on at Six Music. And so I do listen to a lot of music and I'm, I'm brought into contact with a lot of bands and a lot of new bands. And I think anecdotally and experientially over a period of the last five years probably now, I'd noticed that you could just tell that the makeup of bands was changing. They were older, for one thing, than they'd traditionally been. You know, we get the idea of, of vans full of teenagers, you know, going down the motorway being the kind of uh, rock band template. But I'd noticed that they were older and from more middle-class backgrounds, from more well-to-do backgrounds. I think the moment when this sort of leapt into full focus was when I was looking at the lineup of a band called the Maccabees, who are a terrific group and who I, I like very much. And I noticed that the Maccabees comprised a Felix a Hugo, an Orlando. And I just thought, in the 1960s, in the sort of what people think of as the golden ages, perhaps, of early British rock, the, the Kings and the Who and the Beatles and such like, bands were full of people called Bob and Eric and Bill and Bert and these very stolidly working class names. And I just got to thinking about this. And it became part of, I guess, at the same time, other people in other fields had started to talk about how actors were seemingly becoming more middle class and drawn from more middle class backgrounds and, and artists and even comedians and people in, in the media. And it just sort of coalesced into an idea that I had. And I wrote a magazine article for it for the New Statesman. At the time, they asked me if I had any thoughts about this night, and I wrote that. And really, that's where this notion came from, that I suddenly noticed that the traditional breeding ground that we might think of, of rock groups, which is that it's working-class teenagers in industrial cities looking for the you know, the way out of the straightened circumstances, which has always been the case from the Beatles to the Animals to the Who to the Kinks to Eric Clapton. Traditionally, this has always been the template of rock music. Working class kids, bright working class kids, writing about their experiences and then rising above them. Didn't seem to be the case anymore. And I suppose that my theory is, or one of my theories is, that it is simply unaffordable these days. I mean, there was once a breeding ground in Britain, I think, for pop musicians, which was through the 1960s, maybe the art schools, you look at everybody from, say, John Lennon to Sid Barrett of Pink Floyd to Ray Davis of the Kinks, these, these are kids with all with art school backgrounds. Because I think there's this notion that the art school was a place where the sort of creative layabout could sort of be indulged for a few years. And whilst they produced not much in the way of artists, although they did produce British artists as well, but they produced an awful lot of pop groups from, as I say, Pete Townsend to Sid Barrett to John Lennon, a lot of those bright young working class lads primarily, sad to say, had gone through that art school system. It was a place where you could get your ideas together and rehearse your band. And then I guess in the, in the 1970s, a fairly benign, with hindsight, a fairly benign benefit system fulfilled that function as well. So, you know, from punk onwards, you could be on the dole or the enterprise allowance scheme. But that has very much changed. I think that belongs to a different era. And I think since the turn of this century, it is more and more, I think, being a luxury to afford an instrument, to afford a rehearsal space, to afford the simple the time to devote to playing in bands has become, I think, a luxury that perhaps middle class kids can afford more readily. And in that, it echoes something we see all across the, the media, the internships, of course, you know, that you know, have become a watchword in the media that middle class kids can afford to be paid for through whether it be a magazine or a television company or a radio production company. And I do think it is a very important and significant and some would say worrying social change. And I'm slightly worried by it as well. So that's my starting point, really. Do you think that the period we're living through now is the aberration or was perhaps the 60s and 70s actually an aberration that working class people then did really have all these opportunities? I mean, was that something that hadn't happened before, potentially? I've thought about this, and it may be that what we thought of as this constant period of progression, that, you know, there's this Panglossian 
view of humanity and society in that everything is for the best of all best in the best of all possible wasn't that we will simply go on society will go on getting fairer and it will go on getting more equitable and it will go on becoming a healthier social mix in fact that might not be the case and it might be that due to a combination of factors like the second world war and left-wing governments and some enlightened social policy it might be that in fact you're right the 60s were the aberration and that what's happened is that an older order has reasserted itself and that's the case then i think that is quite worrying because i think the art the society produces should reflect all the voices in that society and my worry is that that's not becoming the case and certain voices i was talking to the comedian alexis sale about this he put it very very amusingly he said last week he said he'd noticed that watching the night manager the recent john le Carre adaptation of the night manager on bbc tv he said he'd noticed that even arab terrorist number four was now played by someone who'd been to Balliol. and i know what he means and while he was while he was being jokey i think that masks a more serious point which is that if only certain voices are heard you get an unrepresentative art really and you mentioned a little earlier that, about the Second World War, because clearly that, that brings in this whole idea of, of the nation unifying. What did that mean for working class involvement in popular culture? Well, I think in terms of filmmakers like Michael Balkan, who we talk about in the programme, and in terms of things like the Ealing comedies, what you see is that this is when the nation does does need to pull together, both in the dark days of the war and in the subsequent rebuilding after the, the Attlee 45 landslide. We had to be all in this together for the sake of national unity and redevelopment. So you do get working class people being represented, almost lionised in this romantic way. So you see cheery, hardworking, indefatigable Cockney becomes a, a staple of everything from Brief Encounter to the Ealing comedies. What happens in the 1960s, and we address this in the programme, is slightly different. You get the rise of a new anti-hero, if you like, such as Arthur Seaton in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning, played brilliantly by Albert Finney, or the various angry young men from Jimmy Porter and Look Back in Anger, or the, the various angry young men in the, in the British New Wave films in the 60s. These are sexy, dynamic individuals on the make for themselves. They're not really bothered about the old-fashioned ideas of class solidarity and mucking in with the people in their streets. They see themselves as individual players. And they still are represented, they're represented in a very glamorous way. And I think, you know, that, that again, was a golden age of working-class representation. Someone like Albert Finney striding onto the screen, like Elvis Presley in Saturday Night and Sunday Morning. He's an enormously glamorous and sexy presence, but he's no longer part of a community. He's out for himself. He's an individual agent. And in that, he perhaps belongs to what was going to become in the 60s and 70s, the sort of me generation. One of the most popular and enduring examples of popular culture featuring the working class would, would be Coronation Street. How important do you think that's been in how working class people have been perceived more broadly? You can see in the way Coronation Street has changed over the, the whatever it is now, the 60 years, I guess, is it? In the, almost that it's been in existence. You can see in the changes in Coronation Street, I think, the reflection of wider changes in how working class people are present in our society. It begins in the very first episode of Coronation Street. There is this brilliant, brilliant tableau that it was almost the trope of 60s British culture and representation of working class people. Ken Barlow, young Ken Barlow, firebrand intellectual, comes home in his duffel coat from his first term at college. You look at him, he looks straight from the older master and anti-nuclear marches. And he's full of these new ideas about politics. And of course, he gets home and he sits at the kitchen table with his, with his folks. You can feel his resentment and frustration at the, the sauce bottle and the, the poor food and the inhospitable conditions in which he's come back to. Because he's had his mind and his horizons opened by the university life. And this little town and this little street and this little house no longer is big enough for him. And that was a trope all through the sort of literature and plays of the time, this idea of the, the young working-class intellectual bridling against his background and seeking something new and different. It's the angry young men writ large. You see it in, say, In Celebration by David Story, a, a play of the period as well. It became actually parodied in a brilliant Monty Python sketch about the, you know, the writer or when the, the son comes home and says he wants to be a coal miner. And the writer in the family says, why are you not being a writer like your father, my father before me? You know what I mean? Writing not good enough. Novel's not good enough for you. Are you son? Well, they turn that whole sort of trope on its head. Um, and then down the years, what happens? I mean, Coronation Street was always comic. I've got to make the point there's always been a really healthy comic element to Coronation Street. But you look at Coronation Street now, and it is, it's a programme for teenagers. I mean, I would say, really. I mean, if that's not too much of a criticism. The, the Coronation Street that Tony Warren created all those years ago, very socially aware, rooted in these working class communities, strong, very strong women, work was an ever-present backdrop and things like that. They've become very much, it's, it's essentially a, a sick 
com now really coronation street so that may be a temporary thing it may change again but i think it reflects how the working class communities that it's rooted in have become slightly marginalized and slightly trivialized is there potentially a geographical element to this as well coronation street clearly is based in the north do you think that the working classes have always been perceived as being outside the southeast even though that's not necessarily the case and that certain accents have always been associated with it Oh, absolutely. I mean, my grandmother used to say that I had a posh accent, which will seem extraordinary to some people listening to this now. But I knew from the first moment I took any sort of steps in the media that, you know, I would open my mouth and and with it would come a whole set of things that people would assume about me. Sometimes funny, sometimes irritating, you know. I've I've, I've, I've done programmes for Radio 4 in which I've had comments that said about me, you know, presenter seems none too bright when of course clearly what i think that meant was presenter seems a bit northern and i know you can get to use that horrible expression chippy about this and you can but there is truth in it because in the 60s and 70s they became such powerful ideas in literature from saturday night and sunday morning onwards and even some through the 90s with people like oasis the idea of the swaggering working class lad made good and then makes his way to London time. These are such powerful ideas that I think they do slightly resonate as well. And of course, that is what a great deal of the programme is about, is how over the last few years, the working class hero idea has been... I mean, there was this comment banded about in the 60s and 70s. I'm not sure it was ever true, but this idea said slightly resentfully by perhaps children of middle class parents that, you know, you couldn't get on the BBC unless you had a regional accent. This idea that once the Beatles had happened... You had to have a Scouse accent to get on the radio. That John Peel, a public school boy from Shrewsbury School, had to affect a Scouse accent in order to make his way in the, in the hip world of pop music. I'm not sure that was ever really the case. I think the powerful players in those mediums were always privately educated and from the middle classes or upper classes. But there certainly was this feeling that things were freer and fairer. And what you get now, of course, though, is that when you hear, and this was very much the motivation behind me writing the article and this programme, that when you hear working class voices, regional accents on TV more and more these days, it is likely to be on a programme like Benefit Street. That's actually one of the, I suppose, big debates in this area at the moment, is this the rise of what many people are calling poverty porn. Do you think that's a new phenomenon, or have things like this been going on for longer than that? I think it is a relatively new phenomenon in the way we see it now. Let's take the 1960s when you would have, I mean, famously, and we talk about Kathy Come Home, you did have programmes in the 60s and 70s that reflected working class life as it was lived, either in a very cheery and warm and romanticised way or in a very grim way. I guess we must be careful, though, of making the distinction. I guess Kathy Come Home was not about traditional working class communities, solidly working class communities with, with kinship ties, very strong kinship ties, etc., etc., etc. We're talking about what would now be called the precariat. We're talking about young people pushed around from pillar to post in rented accommodation. And that is becoming more and more characteristic of our society, I think, in our urban society. But I do think something like Benefit Street would have chimed very oddly in the 1960s. I mean, I don't think when you're switching your television on and seeing Jimmy Tarbuck and Ken Dodd or the Beatles or when all around you evidence of the vitality of working class life and culture were being shown on a regular basis and in fact middle class culture and upper class culture the, the more traditional established arts seemed rather prissy by comparison I do think if you'd done a program said look at these idle shiftless scrounges you know essentially which you've got those programs doing I think that would have chimed very oddly at the time and I think people would have thought hmm this is a bit this is a bit odd, this is a bit wrong, this is a bit unfair. And yet we seem to have come to accept it recently. Now, I know the makers of these programmes, we, we trod very carefully with this phrase poverty porn, which is something I, I used in my original magazine article. And I know that it offends some of the makers of these programmes. And, and they say, well, this is not poverty porn, this is observational, social, documentary or whatever. I don't think it's far of the mark, but I mean, that's a matter of opinion, but I don't think it's far of the mark. And I do think that the, the fact that it is always the most lurid, the most impoverished, the most rundown communities that are gone to, always pretty much northern. All of these programmes seem to pretty much focus on the north. I, I do think that that is a, a modern phenomenon. And I do think it would have looked very odd in the era of either the Ealing comedies or the Angry Young Men or the Beatles. Perhaps what's different about it is the fact that programmes like this are essentially probably middle and upper middle class people presenting the working class to the masses, whereas in the past, would it have been the working class themselves that told their own stories? 
Well, this is a very profound point, yeah, that access to, I mean, what's called within media studies, gatekeepers, access to the media, being a television producer or a commissioning editor or the editor of a magazine or daily newspaper. I mean, I think there was a period in the 1960s and 70s, maybe even into the 1980s, where those positions were, were sort of up for grabs. I mean, for a whole range of complex social issues, probably more complicated than I've got experience or expertise in telling you now, Rob. But, but I mean, I think there was a feeling that widespread social mobility, free education, access to higher education for working class kids, all these things contributed to getting working class kids into position of influence and power. I mean, although I did notice my, my own training to the media was through the music press, which has always been, I think, a fairly egalitarian way of kids like me from a council estate in Wigan. I mean, I certainly would not have walked into a job at the Sunday Times. I could walk into a job at the NME simply by being interested and good enough, I hope. But even so, when I began to take my first steps in the media, I did begin to realise oh, there are a lot of people here with the same surnames as other people in the media. And, it, and rather innocently, it took me a while to work out that this is because people got jobs for their kids and people got jobs for their family, which, of course, in some ways, people would say, well, it's the same down the pit, or it was the same down the pit, or it was the same in an engineering factory. There is nothing particularly heinous or wrong about that, fair enough. If those positions are kind of culturally so significant, I guess it is a worry. But I do think that what now looks like a golden era of access to power and education and social mobility does seem to have rolled back in the last few years. Social surveys again and again say that social mobility is on the decrease. So something that was given us as a sort of social goal that we all took for granted, more working class kids are going to get jobs in the arts and the media and politics, well, that's rolled back. That's certainly the, the pendulum has not only stopped at its high point, but swung in the opposite direction. That was Stuart McConey. Working class heroes and poverty porn airs this Saturday at 8pm on BBC Radio 4. Well, that's pretty much it for this week, but do listen in next time when we'll be talking about Shakespeare and cricket. It's an episode that you won't want to miss. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website historyextra.com where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.